You may have heard the story about a little boy who was drawing something on a paper, and his mom came by and sort of looked over his shoulder and said, honey, what are you drawing? He said, it's a picture of God. She said, but honey, nobody knows what God looks like. And he said, well, they can have a look at my picture when I'm finished. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The reason that I tell that little story is that in a very real way, that little boy may have a greater propensity to know what God looks like than his mom or dad or me or you. There's something about little children that is delightful to us. Um, there is something about their innocence. There is something about their inclination already to know and to believe in God. We have to unlearn them if we want them to be modern people in our kind of a society. Because they start out already understanding that there is a God who loves them and who knows them. They start out a able to grasp um, some of the truths that we, even as, as grown adults, have difficulty grasping. And we go back to the life of Jesus and just sort of ask the question, how was it with children when Jesus was around? And so you can imagine Jesus was this itinerant teacher. There were always crowds of people all around the place. And there were always children also coming around. And the adults who hung out with Jesus were not happy that the kids were always bothering Jesus. And so they would try to shoo them away. Uh, and, and Jesus had stern words for those kinds of people. What do you think about kids? Some people just absolutely love kids. Some people are bothered by kids. But we're all called to love to embrace our kids. The happiest noises in here on Sunday morning, alongside of the worship songs, is the tromping around upstairs, right? That is a religious sound. It is not a bothersome sound. It is not, how do we get stoppers on those stools so they're not dragged around upstairs? It's, oh my goodness, the privilege of having kids in church with us, enjoying being here. When I was a kid, I did not enjoy church. And many of you, I think, understand that too. Church was a place where you were told to be quiet. Church was a place, uh, in, in my experience, that had a lot of old ladies with hats on and funny smells. <laughs> That's what it was like. Um, and church was the place you had to dress up. So you've been mocking me for dressing up this morning. I have to go to an open house, so I had to dress up a little bit. This is not for church. Because right? <laughs> I resist this idea that you have to dress up for church. And I know that if I was going to meet the queen or the king, I would dress up. Well, I'm not. We should love our kids, embrace our kids, and take leadership from our kids. And this ought to be a place that kids remember fondly. And the people who are leading them, like Claire, like the various others that we see every Sunday morning, our children will remember them fondly because of that little English woman who stood on a stone at the front of church. Those kinds of things are what church, what community is really about. 
So back to Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here's one of the situations that we come across in the Gospels. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now it was first of all um, a correction to the disciples, but there's a theology lesson in what Jesus said. He said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, such as children. Don't shoo them away as though they have no place around me, as though they have no concept of my kingdom, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Another time uh, about the children, we're told that he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those are profound and yet wonderfully simple concepts that Jesus is sharing with everyone who is crowded around him. What he's saying is not only are children um, a, a great asset, a great treasure to us, but children are our teachers about how to get into the kingdom of heaven, about what it means to inherit the kingdom of God, what it means to see God. Children are the way that we are probably most able to see God, to see the truths about God, the truths of our faith, the things that we, we hold on to and we believe in. I resist that. Um, I resist simplicity. Um, I am, if you remember the Enneagram, I am an eight, which means I need to be against. So no matter what anybody says, my first reaction is to say no, right? I will be in the, the committee that when everybody else is just nodding, I will say, yeah, but. And I found another guy like that, that's Andrew, so you're all in trouble. <laughs> because when you say something, we'll all say no. You'll have to convince us before we'll move along. So the idea that there is something simple and clear and obvious is elusive to me. I find myself in theological conundrums all the time. Um, my head is a really busy place. It's a noisy place. I can't get it quiet. And the things that go on in my head are the kinds of concerns, questions, um, wonderings that if we stop and think about it, we all kind of have. You know, we are fixed on a particular understanding of faith and how a human person is related to God. But we're also bombarded with all kinds of other ideas. And so when a new idea comes along, my inclination is to think about that and wonder why I am right and that is wrong. Um, and, and I need to go back to the beginning, which I do many, many times, and I ask, okay, why do I believe what I believe? Is it reasonable to believe what I believe? What about people who don't believe what I believe, but also are really convinced that what they believe is right and true? 
How do I navigate that? So I do go back to the beginning and I ask very basic questions about the existence of God, about humankind, about the problem that we have, which is that we mess up, we have messed up, um, and that there needs to be some solution to it. So I will listen to everything that is uh, spun around me um, that's in the way of a political solution, even a religious solution, an ideological solution, um, human activity, ingenuity, all those kinds of, of um, solutions. And at the end of every time I have my little conversation in my head, I come back to the same place. And the same place is this, that Christianity makes absolute sense. I believe in the person of Jesus. I believe that he is the focus of what God has always done and is doing and will do in our world. I believe that. I will doubt it again, but then I will come back to being confirmed in what I have believed. So what I'd like to present to us this morning is this whole idea um, that simplicity and clarity come most readily uh, to the person who is ready to go back to zero and think about very basic things and accept those very basic things. I don't need to know the answer to some of the questions that plague my mind. Um, some of the questions that plague our minds are why God complete the sentence. And they bring me into an area of wondering to what degree does God or did God when someone says, I think I know now why God did this to me. That just throws my head into a spin because I'm thinking God did not do this to you. Life did this to you. Our brokenness did this to you. Our fallenness did this to you. Why does anyone suffer? Not because he or she committed a sin necessarily. Any one person suffers because we all sinned. We are all the reason for every suffering person in our universe, on our planet. So we need to come back to some very basic understandings of the nature of God that for me are very simply this, God is good. God is love. And a little child can understand that far more easily than I can. Because I get it all muddled up with, well, if God is love, or if God is good, and, and then you know go on down my, my rabbit hole. God is love. God is good. And our children know that. They know that because they have been created, uh, having come into this world with a knowledge already planted in their minds and hearts about God, God's goodness, and God's love for them. And so when I am struggling with the questions and when I dare to wonder why God would allow or not allow, uh, I need to come back to, no, 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 I don't know how to interact with that kind of a question, but I do know this. God is good, and God is love. And maybe that's enough, right? Maybe that's enough. God will explain himself if he wants to explain himself when we see him. I think when we see him, we will end up um, having a conundrum like Job, saying if God would really show up, I could present my case to him, and he would know that it wasn't fair. 
So God comes, and he says, so Job, I hear you want to have a chat with me. And Job ends up by saying, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. When God asks him really profound questions like, hmm, where were you when I did this or that or created this or that? Where were you? Tell me if, if you would like to. Job ends up saying, um, I am not able to interact with God. And at the end of the day, Job knew that God was good and God was love. Early on, even his wife said, why don't you curse God and die? And Job says, you're a foolish woman. That's, that's talking nonsense. Why would we accept the good and not the bad? It, you know, it, it wasn't even a theology. It was just like an evident reality that life is hard and broken. And in behind the scenes, we're given the drama of God having a meeting with Satan, who dares to challenge God. Um, and at the end of the day, the story has Job blessed by God, um, endorsed by God, and having learned profound things about God. What do we need to know to believe? What do we need to know to fix ourselves in our faith? We have what we call a statement of faith, and it talks about those very basic commitments that we think that these are the marks of evangelicalism or these are the marks of the alliance in Canada. We agree together about some things that are almost universally agreed upon in the evangelical church. So we stand on those things and we say, it is important to know what we believe. It is important to have interacted about those beliefs, thought about how they would be if they were not true, if we did not believe them, but then also think about the implications of the fact that we do believe those things that we do. Every now and then, I have lovely conversations, in fact, as often as I can, um, with people who are struggling with their faith, who are struggling to believe. And beginning from this, I'd like to just sort of move along to ask the question, why do some people struggle to believe the things that they understand are true or practice the things that they understand should be practices of their faith. So let me come with you to an Old Testament passage. And in the Psalms, there's this beautiful psalm. It's actually a long psalm with, with much more to it. But the question is asked, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. I want to think about those things just for a moment. How do we know what we know? Um, how are we firmed up in what we know and what we do? Well, first of all, we go to the children. And we ask the question, what would be the most simple commitment to these things that the Bible seems to say to me? And not only to the children among us, but to the simple ones among us. We idolize the intellect in the West. Um, we're impressed by really smart people. I'm impressed by really smart people. Um, Andrew and I have a common smart person. His name is Tom Wright. And Andrew's answer when someone says something to him or asks him a question, Andrew might say, I don't know, but I think Tom Wright probably does. And I agree. 
brilliant people, and God has given uh, people with wonderful minds to the church, and, and they lead us and they shape us. But what it comes down to living regular day in and day out Christianity, we need to embrace the simple things, and we need to um, pretty much assume the posture of simplicity. I have met people who have very little education, and yet they are very brilliant people. I've told you about a group of Ugandan pastors uh, with very little education. But over a course of a few years, we went and met with them and taught them. And as they would interact with, and sometimes they had enough um, to be able to read and, and talk, but sometimes not even really able to read, but they could talk to one another and they could interact with the things that we would share with them. And the brilliant conversations that they had, the insightful conversations that they had, were, were staggering to me. They would say things, and there were usually two of us teaching. Um, the other guy was Bob, and I'd often look at Bob and say, did you, did you ever think about that, Bob? And he'd say, no. Where did that come from? Where did you get that? They were simple, not simple in any derogatory way, but they were simple in their willingness and their faith to embrace the truth that God's word would, would present to them. And so it was wonderful to be able to learn from them. So when we are staggering and questioning and wondering, and I am one of us doing that, when we are, first of all, maybe we ought, ought to go and read children's literature the most profound literature in the world, um, mostly C.S. Lewis, Narnia, but apart from that, children's books are wonderful. Why? Because they're, they're basic and simple, and they're beautiful. They're colorful in their storiness and in their vividness. So maybe we can go and learn from children via their literature, via their playground talk, via the things that they think about and wonder about. Um, maybe we should be willing to assume the posture of the unlearned, of, of the simple person, and see if we don't find our minds satisfied at the end of, of those little processes. When people have a great struggle to believe or to continue to believe, um, and, and I have with them many times, great conversations. Um, this verse needs to inform how I understand the kind of um, obtuseness in our, in our faith. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What I want to suggest very simply this morning, and here is a clumsy statement, it's like when you try to say everything you want to say with big words and then you read it back to yourself and think, nobody's ever going to quote that. <laughs> but here's what I have come to understand. That perhaps for some, a jaded morality is a bigger impediment to faith than actual questions and objections. At least for some, the reason they can't believe, the reason they can't move ahead is moral. It's not epistemological, like that word. It's not their theory of truth. It's not their philosophy of, of knowledge. 
It's the fact that there's a moral foundation for actual revelation and knowledge. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Not someone who is able to perform religious duties, not someone who is able to sing or play a trumpet or whatever. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So that knowledge is a relational phenomenon. It's not an academic phenomenon. And if I have stuffed up morally, I should not expect to understand spiritually. I'll let that sink in. Um, because over the years, I've, I've found many times when you drill down and say, what is it that's sticking for you? What is it that you can't get past? What is it that, that you are not believing anymore? Um, the number of times that it actually comes down to sort of anecdotes of actual moral failure, or not even thorough failure, but moral lapses or inadequacies, um, or a carnal mind and heart that lives in the ways of the world, by the ways of the world, by the wisdom of the world, and seeks to layer Christian faith on top of that. And that is endemic in the West. It's endemic in North America. It's endemic as you have these, well, I won't say what happened in the U.S. this week. But there's this sort of assuming of things that are thoroughly unbiblical, thoroughly unchristlike, and thinking that we can just layer Christian faith on top of that and call it something when it is dark at its heart and its root, and yet we can put Christian language on it. And we've thought so many times about the money, sex, and power triad that, that all of us deal with, um, sometimes one more than the other, sometimes all of them. But we have been able to take even those things and layer Christian faith on top of them. And then we can't understand why it doesn't work. We can't, we can't understand why a Christian nation behaves in a thoroughly unchristlike kind of a way. We wonder why that can be. And nobody actually asks the question. Nobody dares to say, the, em the emperor has no clothes. There's, there is wisdom from a kid's book, right? Only a child was able to name the failure. The emperor has no clothes on. Everybody knew it, but the child could say it innocently. Perhaps for some, a jaded morality is actually a bigger impediment to faith than actual questions and objections. I still run the, the discussions in my head. I'll probably never stop doing it. Sometimes they get quieter and quieter, as I at least have the presence of mind to ask, what would a child say about this? What would be a simple version of this? Um, and then I also need to ask, are my hands clean and is my heart pure? Because if my hands are dirty and my heart is not pure, I will not know what's true or real. Several years ago, I was a chaplain at a cancer clinic one day a week. And as we were 
training for what we were going to do, that we had some clinical training that we had to undergo. So a surgeon taught us how to wash our hands. Do you know how many people out of 10 washed their hands long enough? Zero. If you think you have washed your hands, if you think you have done a surgical hand scrub, if you think you've even washed your hands to the point that they are really clean, I bet you haven't. It takes longer, it takes more intentionality than just running the water and putting your hands under there and going to the towel. Keeping our hands clean is critical. Little children know that. They know they have to wash their hands. They also know things about if they have done something wrong, they're in trouble. They also have a conscience that upsets them so that when they are corrected by a parent, they come to the point, as Andrew said last week, of, of needing mercy, and any good mom or dad will readily dispense mercy. But they kind of want to hear that the child says, you know, I've got dirty hands. My hands are kind of dirty here. We, we are marked um, by the dirt of the world in which we live and by the environment in which we function. I had a, a good friend, his name was Wooly, and Wooly loved to play soccer, football, because he was Scottish. And Wooly grew up in the kind of church that I grew up in, which was Sundays were a time not ever to play sports. So Sunday afternoon, what we all had to do was go in our rooms and have a nap. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. Well, Wooly not having anything to do with that, every Sunday afternoon went out his window, went and played football with his friends, climbed back in the window, and was back in bed by the time his dad came and woke him up. One day, his dad came in and said, Wooly, where have you been? In my room, Dad. Wooly, come here. He took Wooly into the bathroom and when Wooly looked in the mirror, he saw the imprint of an incredible header that he had put a ball with right in the corner of the net. He was marked by the things that he had done. And so are we. And so we need to have regular hand washing. And once we wash our hands, then we have an, an easier access to our hearts and say, you know what, it was good to get that dirt off my hands, but now I want to attend to my heart. Is my heart pure? As pure as it can be? I mean, is my heart single? Um, what are my values? What are my, what are my priorities? Um, because I can't go the way of a child. I can't go the way of a simple. I can't get into the constitution of the Beatitudes that says the pure in heart will see God. If I want to see God, I won't draw a picture on the counter, but I will practice the things that God has told me about himself, notably that he is love and that he is good. And then I will practice into my life and in my community, keeping my hands clean and my heart pure. I had a, a young man quite a number of years ago now. He was a seminary student. And he wanted to meet and talk 
about his spiritual life because he said that he wasn't getting anywhere in his relationship with God. That he he was feeling like God never heard him when he prayed. And he was reading scripture and not getting anything out of reading the scriptures. So as we met, and he, he was sincere in this. He was you know, self-condemning about why he couldn't get closer to God. Along the way, um, I don't even know how, how this happened or how it was prompted, but he confessed to me that he was having an active affair with the daughter of one of our elders, a married woman. And I said, what? He said, do you think that's why I can't get close to God? You see, the problem was not intellectual. The problem was moral. And because he did not have clean hands and a pure heart, he couldn't see God. But you can't go ahead and play the game of Christian faith if you're not willing to do what is necessary to stay in the zone um, so that you can see God because you have a pure heart or a heart that's becoming pure. I mean, the longer we live, the dirtier our hands get, and the more impurities threaten to kind of work their way into our hearts. But who's going to ascend the hill of the Lord? Those with clean hands and a pure heart. We're going to sing that. And I encourage you, um, because all of us have lived this week out there in our world, and there may have been some things that we have thought or done that are like dirty hands. Um, the prayer book is a lovely book of, of prayers and confessions where we say we have done those things that we ought not to have done and we left, have left undone those things which we ought to have done and there's no health in us. So as we sing this song, um, get down on your knees if you'd like to, come up here, get on your knees if you'd like to, but... If you're just saying, I think maybe the impediment for me right now is not thoughts, it's not my mind, it's not truth. The impediment may be moral. I, I may not be in the right place to see God. So um, take this time as you sing. It's a very simple song. And uh, meditate on, on the words from Psalm 24 as we um, delight in a deeper way, in our children, in those who are simple, in that which is simple. And when we say, okay, um, I'm going to make sure it's not a moral issue that's frustrating my beliefs. <laughs>